KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in Depth. I'm Brian Seltzer. James Harden is a 76er. Let's try that again. James Harden is a Philadelphia 76er. Even a couple days after last week's big trade, it's still kind of surreal to say. Harden is a 10-time All-Star, and he's widely regarded as one of the best basketball players on the whole planet. How did he get this good? I talked to a guy who would know, his high school head coach. Scott Perr is now the head coach at Rice University in Houston. And not only did he coach Harden his freshman, sophomore, and junior years out in California, he also was an assistant for Arizona State, where Harden played in college. When Scott and I spoke the morning after last week's deal between the Sixers and the Brooklyn Nets, I asked him what following Harden's ride these last 20 years has been like. I'm just very fortunate to, to, to be a part of that ride, you know, in some small way. Been incredible to the point where there's, there had been times, you know, where I just pinch myself and say, like, what is going on here? You know, winning three straight scoring titles and just becoming, you know, one of the elite players, not only in, in, in the game today, but you know, and you start saying the words all time, it just gets mind boggling just because how I know him and how a relationship is. It's just not something you think when he's 13 or 14 is going to happen. And, uh, you know, he, he, he dreamt about those types of things, but to watch it come to, to reality is, is wild. Is it like a proud parent type feeling? Is it different, more of a mentor watching a pupil come along? Maybe describe what that feeling's like. You know, that's a really good question. Um, and I, and I've been asked a lot of questions about him over the years. I don't know if I've been asked that one, that frame that way. I, I think it's a combination of both. I, I follow him so closely. You know, I've, I've, you know, literally every box score and or game over a, you know, whatever 13 year career now. So I'm, I'm really, you know, and him being in Houston for so long and me being so close. Um, yeah, it is. It is. And there was times, you know, I'm, I'm over this now, but there were times years ago it was, it was hard for me to watch sometimes because, you know, I wanted him to, wanted him to do so well. And if he wasn't, you know, you turn it off and turn it back on. And, but then he just gets to the point where he was so, you know, he, none of that really mattered. He was doing fine. And, and it was just me being weird. But I think that's kind of how when you're not coaching and you're a fan or you're, you know, you have a great relationship with somebody, you want them to do so well. That, that, that you, you have that feeling. And it, so, yeah, it's a combination of, of, of all those things. That's crazy. I never thought about it like that. So would it be in big games or in a big moment? Is it like, James, do this, do that, you know, yelling at the TV? Yeah, you, well, and, you know, if, or if he misses, you know, you want him to make that big shot or, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, wish, wish you, but then you're like, wait a minute, he had, you know, 45, 15, and 12. <laughs> you know, the, it's just absurd, just the stuff he was doing. I mean, it just it just went to a level of just absolute, craziness and now you know he's obviously he's you know in his in his early 30s and the Houston situation kind of they went another we're going to go another route so he he was looking to find a place where he, he could try and get a championship and and that's all that matters now it's all that matters to him it's all that really ever has mattered um despite what Twitter thinks and the way people want to be critical and <laughs> the world we live in it's all James has ever wanted to do is win a championship Right. I think that when you look at the wiring for some of these elite superstar athletes who haven't been able to taste a title or a championship, he is that good. Like you said, all-timer, total Hall of Famer, no doubt about it, but he's still chasing that championship. And now he lands with the 76ers. They're trying to justify and validate this process, which 
incredibly, has almost been a decade in the making. So what do you make of this fit, this trade? How do you think it might work out? Uh, you know, I'm still trying to digest it myself. You know, it's like I told him last night. If he's happy, I'm happy. I mean, if if, if this is something that, you know, he's excited about and happy about, then I'm really happy for him. I, I know, you know, obviously he's he's reunited with Daryl, you know, who who's you know, I've gotten to know very well through my years here. Um, and I know that relationship's important to him. Um, I know he, he has respect, obviously, for the Sixers organization, which I think also is very important. He knows there's a top five or whatever player Embiid is, three, maybe one this year. I don't know. But he, they, he understands they have a, a really cornerstone player who's hungry uh, for a championship and who's also frustrated for, for different reasons, as we the obvious reasons as well. So both guys here coming together and, and obviously the pieces that the Sixers have in place, I, it's exciting and, and it'll be fun to watch. Did you talk to him by text on the phone? Did he seem pumped up and excited? Oh, yeah. I, I talked to him for a while. He's excited. He's very excited. And, you know, I, I joked with him. I told him it's just, you know, to me, it's, it's again, this this parallel, you know, kind of deal that we've lived in. And that, now, now he's going to the place where I grew up or close to, you know, 90 miles from where I grew up uh, to try and to, to play. And, you know, the amount of people that have reached out to me, you know, already, including you in the last, whatever, 20 hours or so has been hilarious, but I've gotten used to it. it it's, I, I, it never bothers me. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, it's, it's, but you know, everybody f- thinks, you know, they need to know my, my opinion of what I got nothing to do with it. You know, I, I'm just, you know, I'm just close to him and, and happy for him. So I was going to ask you this, you're from Hershey. That's kind of where you spent your formative years. You were an assistant coach at Penn for a while. That's where we met. How does a guy from Hershey end up kind of like uncovering this generational talent? I don't know. Uh, a lot of good fortune. You know, when you step back and, you know, if I try and think of it like that, it kind of, you know, you're like, you know, who just crazy are how our lives intertwine. You know, because I got, I got married to someone who, you know, was moving to California. So I, I moved with her and, we're struggling my first couple of years at Artesia. And in my third year, we did really well, which kind of put Artesia basketball back on the map in the Southern California landscape. And that happened to be the time he was leaving eighth grade and picking his high school. But he also was not this superstar, big name ranked kid either. So there's just a kid that was coming to my school that, you know, loved basketball and could shoot. And, and next thing I know, all these, you know, we, we had an incredible experience. Uh, we formed a tremendous relationship. You know, for him to follow me to Arizona State was one of the big compliments of my c- career. And now all this, you know, it's it's surreal in, in many ways. So for people in our audience who may not understand how it works out in California, you said pick which high school. H- how does that work? If, if After eighth grade, you can pick the high school you want to attend as long as you have a means to get to and from that school. And, and James lived in Compton. And uh, I believe his mother, you know, did not want him to go to one of the Compton high schools. And so, like I said, I, I'm, I know for James, it was a basketball decision even back then. And we had just gone 30 and three and, and had a tremendous season. And it was far enough away, about, you know, about eight miles, 10 miles, whatever it is. And, you know, he would ride buses early in the mornings and he sacrificed a lot too, you know, so it wasn't easy. And those early days, with me were not easy. Uh, he didn't take me t- to me too well early, but over time, you know, trust was formed and, and he knew I had his best interest at heart 
And then that's where the relationship really blossomed. I watched some footage from his Jersey retirement ceremony at Artesia a couple months ago when the Brooklyn Nets were out in L.A. One of the things they talked about was, and I think he referenced this too, the workouts that he would put himself through that I think someone said, or maybe he said in an interview that he would like start workouts at five in the morning. So to achieve this level of greatness, there has to be an insane drive and motivation. What do you think fuels him? Even from that young of an age, what was driving him? Uh, he, you know, he had a dream, you know, and I learned some of this stuff later in, you know, the I'm going to be a star famous story that he note that he left his mom. And, and I know he loved, you know, he loved Kobe Bryant. I mean, he was such a Kobe Bryant fan. And so if you're going to be a fan of Kobe Bryant and, and you, and you d- d- dive deep into what workouts and, and motivation and focus looks like, that's certainly a pretty good guideline. Now, there's only one Kobe Bryant, and so you, you, it's hard. And I used to say that to, to him and or the guys, it's, it, you know, but you, you can find a way to be, you know, create your own niche and, and your own level of, of workout. And, you know, James was willing to do things when nobody was looking, and, and that was the key. He just, and, and even after school, you know, I took him home many days, but many days, you know, I'd just wait in the, in the gym for him to be done shooting or shooting with him or whatever. And then he'd hop on a bus and go home. And he had a, he had a work ethic and it developed over time. I, I don't think that he, as a freshman, I would call him the hardest working kid I ever had. I'd, I'd be a lie. Um, but it developed over time to where it became obsessive. Did you and your staff, some of the coaches you worked with at Artesia, because you left before his senior year and then reconnected with him at Arizona State, what was like the developmental roadmap for him? Did you chart it out like that? Like this year, we're going to do this. The next year, we're going to do that. And maybe by the time, you know, now you got him in college. So like, okay, this is what we did in high school. Let's try to refine this. Kind of walk us through that. Yeah, really, really good point. And back then, and I've got to put myself back in that, you know, 2003, 2004, you know, thought process, because I've had some coaches and teachers at the school tell me things that I'd forgotten, you know, kind of that how I was going to do it, what we wanted to do. But with him, he was a great shooter when I got him. And what I explained to him early on was if, if you want to be a good player, you have to learn to score on the days you don't, you're not making shots. And that's where we started the whole attack in the rim, uh, drawing fouls thing where, where we would, you know, play a game that you know, was kind of called this X out layup drill. And I had the, this pad and I was a little more younger, stronger and athletic back then. I, if I did it now, he'd, he'd probably break my arm, <laughs> but he drive to the rim and I, and I'd hit him. I'd not hit him to harm him, but hit him to make sure. And but he'd go down. I'd say, "Get up, make two free throws, or get up and make another layup." And he had to make eight or ten in a row of these with me hitting him and me hitting him and me hitting him. And he learned to take the contact, and 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 how to finish through contact. Then he started as a sophomore. Okay, shot more free throws. He was getting the, and as a junior, then I mean, he was getting the line six, eight, ten times a game. And we had a little challenge too. We played a little game like, "Look, hey, you got to shoot six free throws every game. If you don't." You know, you're going to run or whatever. If you do, at the end of the year, and you know, I think it was back down, get you pizza. The story turned into burgers, and the media's gone crazy with that story, but it's not not all accurate. And um, But but it is, the, the gist of it is, you know, like motivation to get to that foul line, get to the – and then the other thing we wanted to do over time was raise his release. He shot very low as a freshman, catch, shoot, slow, low, and but he could shoot. And I told him, you know, if you want to play Division One college basketball, you want to be, you've got to raise it and get it quicker. 
So as a sophomore, it was a little higher. Then as a junior, it was, you know, probably, you know, where it is now. And so those are some of the, the things that we really, really worked on. Coming up, Scott tells us about the moment he started to get vibes that Harden could become not just a really good player, but a superstar. More with the high school head coach of the newest 76er after this. I'm Brian Seltzer, and this is KYW News Radio in Depth. We're talking with Scott Paris. Scott is now the head coach at Rice University. He coached James Harden for his first three years in high school and then had him for two years when Scott was an assistant at Arizona State. Scott and I spoke the morning after the trade last Thursday between the 76ers and the Brooklyn Nets, and I asked him if there was a moment or a collection of moments when he sensed that Harden could become one of the top players ever in NBA history. I think there's probably two. There's a high school moment where I thought, okay, he can be a really good high major basketball player. And that was, you know, his junior year in the spring and the second part of the year uh, when we made our run to the state title and he was starting to dominate games. And, 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 and he only averaged 18 points a game. It wasn't like he was dominating games averaging 35, but he dominated the games, whether it was, you know, at 18, 12 and six or regarding other teams, best player or, you know, whatever it took to win. And then that spring, his NAU, he, he started to dominate cl- kids all over the country in his class. So I'm okay. McDonald's All-American potential. He's going to be a, a, a very good high major player. Then the, the, the moment where I, I thought, okay, now he's going to be a chance to be a, a pro was his freshman year at ASU in a home game against Arizona. He had a fifth year kid named Juwan McClellan. I still remember it vividly to this day, guarding him. And James was an 18-year-old freshman. And James was just unstoppable down the stretch. And then we won in overtime. And I was like, okay, if he can handle this kid who's a man, a 23-year-old fifth-year senior who's a great defensive player, um, he's going to have a chance to to be a pro. And I didn't know he'd be this kind of pro. But, I, you know, that, those are the kind of the two two times where I kind of hit me like, okay, this is next-level stuff is happening. It's really intriguing because I do think some people look at him as kind of, I don't want to say underdog story, but someone who wasn't a bona fide lock coming up through the ranks. But then he did go number three in the draft and he was chosen overall. So there was a pedigree there. And then he really took off after a few years in the NBA. So here he is now joining forces with another MVP candidate in Joel Embiid. He's going to turn 33 at the end of August. Where is James at in his career right now? And for all that he's done, do you still think there's more left from a developmental standpoint that he hasn't scratched yet that he could do? I, I think, yes. Not not that he's going to go out and average 35 points a game again, but in, in order to be elite at this level, he'll keep, re- he'll keep tweaking. I mean, the things he's done over the years in the off seasons to elevate his game, you know, whether it was the Euro or the step back or the draw the fouls. I mean, all these different things. He changed NBA rules, Brian. I mean, how great do you have to be to have the league, I think, change multiple rules, not just one, because of how brilliant you are offensively. It's unbelievable. And, and that's such an underrated thing that nobody talks about. I, like, people want to be very critical of James, and, that, and that's fine. I get it. I understand. But how in the heck? I mean, now three-shot fouls aren't three-shot fouls like they used to be because of him. It, it's just wild. And so what he'll do is he'll continue to find ways to keep himself at an elite level to keep surviving in this league, to, you know, to keep trying to win or and be great. I mean, because at the end of the day, I follow these things pretty closely. He's on pace to, what, finish – he could be a top 15 all-time NBA scorer. 
For sure. And one thing that I noticed over the years is that it's so hard for these guys, especially when they reach the level of popularity and stardom that James has, to really have a network of people around them that they can trust. From your vantage point, I mean, here's a kid that, like you said, (laughs) you were trying to motivate through some grub and driving him to and from school. And now here he is, one of the most recognizable athletes on the planet. How do they how do they do that part of it? I mean, the game is tough enough. Succeeding on the court is tough enough, but trying to keep some semblance of normalcy in their life away from it. Like how much of a tough act is that to balance? I I mean, I joke a lot, like he you know, he's lives in a different world than the rest of us. And it's really true. They really they do. Like you travel with them or you're around them on the road, like you see it. Yes. And and when I'm you know, no look, when he's around me he couldn't be you know, he's just James and he's as I got a lot of my ex-players that are in his inner circle, which is really cool. So anytime I see James, I get to see all of them too. So it's just a fun time for me when that when that happens. That's why in Houston it was awesome. But yeah, how you balance that, I have no idea. And here's the other thing I, I think about a lot too, and, and I talk to people about. what What's it like to be like the top 1% or half percent best in the world at what you do? Whether it's a painter, a musician, whatever it is, what the mindset of those people is just different. They operate on a different page than, than everybody else, or they, or they would be where they are. And, and yeah, I know talent has a lot to do with it, but the mental part of it is as much as anything. And so for him to juggle all that and you know, and, and nowadays, the way these guys are, with all the money they make, you know, branding themselves and, and, and all their outside the court interests and things that he loves to do, too. It's just it's just I don't know how he does it. Um, he does have people in this circle, though, that I, I know he trusts and, and I also trust. And that's really important, too. For some people out there who might not necessarily get the granular X's and O's nitty gritty of hoops. Can you speak to some intangibles of James that's really stood out to you over the year? And perhaps, listen, when you're a player of his caliber and his elite level, there's some leadership responsibility that comes with you by designation. How does he handle all that? In what ways does he lead? Because no two players are the same, especially when it comes to leadership. Correct. And and that's something that definitely was kind of thrust upon him at Houston at a very young age. And the that responsibility were some things that he had some growing pains with at 24, 25, whatever age, maybe 23. But but then as time went on, you know, he he really embraced that. Like, I'm the face of the franchise. I'm the leader of this group. And to help raise them to within a Chris Paul hamstring pull of a title. I mean, think about the frustration. You know, James James might be a hamstring pull and a big toe away from two titles. Imagine him dealing with that in terms also with him, his drive to try and find this, you know, win a championship. He was that close twice. And, and so, you know, the leadership part, he, he knows it comes with it. Uh, if you're going to be a great player, you got, and, and people are going to seek you out in these kinds of trades and, and make you one of the pieces of your franchise, then the leadership part comes when you get there to, to kind of show these young guys how to work and what it takes. And, and he'll certainly do that. I mean, a guy is a, obsessed, <laughs> obsessed work workaholic. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that because people want to worry about what he's doing at, you know, at, at 10 o'clock at night instead of what he's doing the other 20 hours or whatever. Right. You need to have some innate ability, obviously, to get to where he's gotten. But for all these guys, there's so much that goes on 
behind the scenes that people don't see. It's really incredible. For someone who still has a relationship and has maintained a relationship through the years with James, when you look at his relationship with Daryl Morey, what was it about the two of them that allowed a connection to be created? Why did they hit it off, do you think? Okay, that, so that's interesting, too, because the whole thing started whenever the trade was made with Oklahoma City, whatever year that was now, James was the poster child for what Daryl was looking for, threes and free throws. So Daryl was basically, if he could pick one guy out of the entire NBA to fit what he was trying to do in Houston, it, it was James. And then he got him in his trade, and he's like, oh, my gosh. And then the two of them, you know, it just kind of metamorphosized in, in this kind of perfect marriage of how James played and how Daryl wanted the team to be formulated. They certainly pushed the limits and, 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 and got close, but I uh, didn't quite get there. And so, you know, for both of them, frustration for sure, you know, because they're both pushing to try and achieve the same thing. I also know Daryl really appreciated James's mental, like James and even Sean Marks of the Nets told me this, and I've known it for years, but James is brilliant. I mean, his basketball mind and how he thinks is, that's one of the advantages, right? That's, that's why he's so great. I mean, his, his mind is, you know, his ability to adjust, change, add, see, you know, lead the league in assist, lead the league in scoring. I mean, his mind is is, is elite. And so he thinks – and so da- he and Dallas are a very smart guy. And so the two of them could connect on that level as well in terms of what it, how we're trying to build this together. And so I'm sure Daryl's excited as, as excited as James, you know, maybe a little nervous because he gave up a lot. But, hey, that's it's part of the business, right? I mean, sometimes you got to roll the dice, man, especially if what you're doing you know isn't going to work. That, that's the other key. You know, look, they'll be criticized if this doesn't work, but that's part of life. If, if what you think you're doing isn't going to work, well, you might as well try something different. And, and, I, and I think with the Ben Simmons mess, right, and, and the Kyrie situation, both of them now, here they are again together. And Look, nobody, nobody hopes it works more than me, but there's no guarantees. Philadelphia 76ers fans certainly hope it all works out as well. So what do you think? <laughs> I know. I believe it. I understand that passion. I, I know. And I, and I hope for – and look, that would be all – like it would be just – it would be surreal like if he could do it there too because I, I know what it would mean to that city. I have such appreciation for the Philadelphia sports fans. So I, I know – look, I also know this – you know, uh, every time he doesn't play well, I'm going to get a lot of texts too. You know, they're all happy now. They all want tickets, but the minute he doesn't play well, I'm going to, I'll, I'll be criticized. The, the only thing I'm worried about is he can't wear number 13. Have you thought about that? Cause I didn't, you know, my, my first thought wasn't, I just forgot. Will I didn't hit, you know, I just assumed, you know, you're wearing 13. I said, I said, Jay, you know, he said, coach, <laughs> I can't. I, oh, I was like, Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. You're not, you're not wearing that one. <laughs> So what what does the number 13 mean to him? Because he's had that through the years. He's never worn anything else. His freshman year at Artesia, that's what he got. And he's worn it every – and it just, I don't know, kind of fits him, his personality, you know, that unlucky 13. No, I mean, not not for him. (laughs) It's been pretty pretty good number. And it's kind of cool when you get to wear the same one, you know, everywhere and almost – I mean – now I need a number one Sixers jersey. I got all the other ones framed in my office. Now I need a Sixers uh, Sixers one, I guess. Well, Scott, it has been great catching up. Great hearing these stories, getting your insights about a guy who instantaneously, even before he got here, I think might have been the most popular athlete in Philadelphia, maybe save for number 21 of the Sixers. But it's just a really exciting time and very cool to hear part of the origin story of James Harden. I Look, I, to your listeners, you know, I know he is pumped. He is 
not just he's not taking it lightly. The guy is is focused and, and, and is locked in on a mission as I've ever seen him. He is really excited about Philadelphia and they're passionate fans and and so look, like I said, I, we all hope it works out. There's no guarantees, but I know you're gonna get his best effort and and, and that's usually pretty good. So be fun to watch those two play together. I know that. Amen to that. Scott, thanks so much. Brian, take care. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in Depth. You can read more about this story on our website, KYWnewsradio.com, and you can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app or find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Brian Seltzer. We'll have another episode coming out soon.